Welcome to another edition of Top Lines and Tales. This week we're sponsored by Harbro, manufacturers and suppliers of quality livestock nutrition. This week sees the start of a new series on Top Lines and Tales recalling some of the history of the native breeds in the UK. We start with the Hereford, a story so extraordinary that it'll span two episodes. And I'm joined by cattle historian and Hereford cattle breeder and enthusiast Clive Davis of the Westwood Herd. Clive, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Andy. Good to be with you. And Clive, it pretty much all starts with the Tompkins family. I believe old man Richard Tompkins died in 1723 and his son Benjamin the Elder inherited a silver cow. And that was nearly 300 years ago. And was that the first recognised Hereford as we know it, Clive? Yes, I, I would expect so in written form, Andy, and through his will. And um, he also left to another son, to Oxen, and their na- they were named Spark and Merchant. And um, I think, because at that point in time, I think we, like it's difficult for us perhaps to, to comprehend, but the main reason for bovines on farms, I expect the cows give milk and they could make a bit of cheese and butter, but the main reason for having the cattle were uh, draft animals and what Richard Tompkins had done was sort of developed a strain of cattle that did that very well not least they held their condition and and that was important for the for the strength of their pulling power um and um and so his cows were so designed to produce these oxen um but of course uh, their family's work uh, started really a revolution of beef production to um into what we know it today and as i said 300 years ago and to put this into perspective we've got robert bakewell uh, everybody knows about sure he wasn't born till 1725 two years later and uh, for our uninitiated listener he's the man who's credited with improving the the longhorn cattle at Dishley grange and uh set a precedent for improvement by using inbreeding and a lot of people would follow that for for many many years wouldn't they clive i mean he he was he was the man and we think we're talking we're predating him aren't we yeah well he he's one of my great agricultural heroes and not least because to be honest andy i don't think we've caught up with him yet i mean he was doing things like conducting trials and experiments to do with soil fertility irrigating of his farm um and the animal experiments he chose the longhorns because they were a common breed in and around that midlands area but he he was well known for his work with developing the shire horse and uh, of course his, his his leicester sheep which um really were exported all over the world and influenced many many breeds but uh, but uh, you know he, he was ahead of his time but what he was above all else over and above the likes of the Tompkins family um one he took a bit more of a scientific view to things but also he was he must have been a bit egotistic really because it, his work was promoting agriculture mm. and uh, the Tompkins family were just happy to go on improving their stock on their farm and over the four generations that we knew of them um that's exactly what they did yeah, and, and I'm saying, going back again, it's still 20 years on beyond that before the Collings brothers and Thomas Booth um, were, were, were credited of, of, of starting the shorthorn. So the Hereford really does predate just about any other animal, or at least in its initial form, predate just about any other beef animal in the UK, yeah, Clive. Yeah, I would say so. And, and of course, uh, although the Tompkins family, you know, were those earliest recorded, there were a number of, 
families around that sort of Hereford, Shropshire, Worcestershire area that um, developed herds of cattle. Mm. But the other thing, Andy, and if anybody's knows what a Hereford beast looks like and you've only got to look at some of the old 1950 western films to, to know that they're red-bodied with a white head actually the Herefords of the Tompkins era were some of them were like that but many of them were dark roan, some light roan some were known as grey so it was a right collection of types and colours um, and actually all they were trying to do was breed improved animals for their purpose which was originally draft and then it became more important that they were uh, beef producers um and so the color thing was secondary as we sure. say today you sure. know there's a you know a good animal can be any color but sure and let, let's go back to just talk to the Tompkins a little bit more um Richard Tompkins took over the court farm in Cannon Pine in, in Herefordshire and he must have been a pretty good farmer, Clive, because he expanded to a few other farms in the area and then he moved his son, Benjamin, into the court farm. They were farming something like 800 acres in uh, 1765. That's a big farm back then, wasn't it? Yes, exactly, and uh, obviously very successful. Actually, they're further back in history, they were a, a, a very noted family in the county and provided MPs for the different areas, but they got embroiled with the Civil War in that they were royalists and some of them through it lost their lives uh, once the parliamentarians took over. And so really the Tompkins family that we're talking about now were, you know, much less wealthy. And as a result, they had to uh, graft and uh, make their way, which they did through some um, pretty effective farming for that time. Yeah, and back, back then farming 800 acres, I suppose tenant farming would be hard work. But I mean, it does show that uh, yeah, their success and their expansion. And these guys are obviously, as we said, be will be developing the Hereford breed all the time. And there's quite a few other names that would be at the same sort of job back then. Uh, Clive, give, give me a, a few other names that would be prominent families around about uh, that mid-1700s. Well, a good friend of, of the Benjamin Tompkins were the Gallius family. They were out at Wigmore. Um, and again, they had a sort of multicoloured breed. Um, the Jeffreys, who were around Lions All, and uh, they moved on to the Grove at Pembridge, which is a noted home of the breed, uh, sort of uh, in the heyday of the breed. The Haywood family um, up at Clifton on Team were fairly early names in the job, and uh, through them, the Walker family, who were originally at Burton Court uh, on the Bromyard side, but uh, moved down to Nightwick by the River Team, and indeed. Their family are still there and farming Herefords uh, to this very day. See, I used to know the Haywoods at Clifton because I lived in Clifton on teams. John Haywood was a builder, and I'm sure it's the same family, probably. Yes, the... I think so too. Uh, you yeah, and the Jeffreys family are still around that area. Um, of course, the other family that have become quite noted were the Tullys of a place called Huntington, which is a little hamlet just um, sort of west of Hereford there. And um, old Mr Tully had three sons that carried on his work but uh, they were noted for their grey Herefords and they're known as Tully Greys uh, which is, again is a sort of colour feature of the knights who were at Downton Castle uh, very uh, well to do people but they started and and, and um, uh, one of the knights was a very keen uh, sort of botanist and uh, studied that aspect of animal work um, but they were they were both noted for their grey cattle but I understand Mr Tully he had darker red cattle too and apparently the one or 
lived up the one side of the roadway and the other up the other, and that would have been a magnificent sight, wouldn't, wouldn't it? it? Just, wouldn't it just? And of course, another well-known chap round there was uh, Richard Arkwright, and those of you at school would remember that uh, uh, Arkwright invented the spinning jenny, and during the Industrial Revolution would have made a lot of money, and uh, he bought the 6,000-acre Hampton Court estate, and of course that went on to be uh, synonymous with Hereford breeding for a long time, and I think it was his son... Uh, John Hungerford Arkwright, uh, who went on and, and um, became president of the society later on, and, and I think and I think he was involved in uh, producing the the herd book later on, and I think the, the, they still are. And we move on by 1788. The Hereford Fair um, exhibited a thousand head of cattle, and, and uh, most of those would be Hereford, as you said, well, probably different colours, but most of those would be Hereford's clothes. They would, Andy. They were Herefordshire cattle, really, as opposed to what we now call Hereford cattle because of that colour thing, you know. Um, but they were cattle of a lot of size and strength, and um, many of them went from those fairs down through to the home counties for sale in London when uh, beef production was becoming a bit more organised. Sure, if we move towards the end of that decade, I, I, I know in 1795 you mentioned the Galliers, John Galliers. They had a sale on the farm, I believe, and that was reputed to be one of the first of its kind for any breed. And a couple of years, mm. late, a couple of years later, the Hereford Agricultural Society was formed and a show held. And that would be when a precedent was starting to be set for the colours, I suppose, by the end of the 18th century. But, Clive, they wouldn't have white heads at this point, would they? I think we have to wait for a man called John Hoover to come in and start uh, doing a bit of work on, on that score. That's right. Well, some some occasionally come up with white heads. In fact, the... the t- the Tullys at Huntington bred a calf with a white head, and it was thought to be a grand occasion, you know, that this white-headed calf appeared. They they kept him and used him, and probably some of his offspring were like that. But it was the Hewer family who were um, originated from North Leach in Gloucestershire, but moved across to Great Hardwick near Abergavenny uh, in Monmouthshire. And... Um, they set about breeding what they considered a better type of Hereford. And it just so happened that, um, that their best ones were red-bodied with white heads. And as a result of their um, inbreeding or line breeding, uh, it, it set that trait. And um, it's a remarkable thing that it's done that, really, because within the animal kingdom, it's only the Hereford that can really put a lasting trademark on its progeny and particularly in the first class i mean if you i'm no great bird watcher but i think i think robins and blackbirds are both of the thrush family but i stand to be corrected but if you crossed one with the other you wouldn't have a ruck of chicks all with red breasts for instance and and but with the hereford you can and this is this most certainly is the work of the Hewer family. And, and so that white head that we're looking for, I mean, that is obviously a highly dominant trait within the Hereford breed, and he wouldn't just fix that by having a couple of goes at inbreeding. That must have been there, and, and, and he must have realised that that was a dominant trait, and then and then he carried on working working away with it that way. They didn't go out to, to produce white-headed cattle. It was just that they were keeping their best animals, which happened to be red-bodied, white-headed, and and I would think these would be in in our eyes today these cattle of the Ewer family would be far superior to what the Tompkins had. They'd be you know a little bit more blocky, um, still got a lot of frame and, and weight and size about them. But 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 you know they had refined them rather. 
And of course, then when other Erifordians started using the Ewer bulls on the likes of the cattle that were developed by the Tompkins and the Galliers and the Jeffreys, I mean, they they were improving them again, and um, and and so it, it was a work in motion. Um, the the reason they the, like the the, the Ewer cattle were very inbred Andy they only used one male line for almost the entire work of the two 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 lives so uh, you know you can see your setting thing in fact it's a wonder it continued isn't it really yeah. I mean we'd all be a bit nervous about doing that nowadays Certainly. but for them it did work and um, you know thank goodness for the development of the Hereford breed that it did. Certainly Clive and we've seen that in other breeds that we'll come on to during this series that uh, there, are, there has was a lot of, of inbreeding done in the early years and probably there'd be some some wastage because of that but going going back to the date that we are the the royal smithfield show which i've had an involvement in yourself as well was started in 1799 and the very first smithfield show was uh exhibited an animal by john westcar hereford bred at torrington and uh he was six years old and weighed 1,100 kilos, Clive, and uh, supreme yeah, champion. Right, yeah. so how, would you, how would you have liked dressing him, Andy? <laughs> I've seen you with the brushes. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, that's, that, that's a big beast, and that sort of shows and characterises, and, and as I said, that's at the end of, of the 18th century, so it um, characterised what they were then, and obviously we've got a, a, you know, another couple of hundred years to go yet uh, uh, with this breed, but at that time they probably would be only three breeds, I would think, in the UK: uh, Bakewell's Longhorns, um, Collins's Shorthorns, and, and the Hereford. And apart from maybe the Devon and the Angus, would be fifty years later after that, wasn't it? So they they were the oh, three dominant. Oh, yeah, I think so, Andy. And I, I think you know the Devons and the Sussex, the red breeds, uh, the Lincolns developed with the help of the Shorthorns, so they're a little bit more modern. But uh, yeah, and most certainly, I, I and, and in amongst the breeds itself, there'd be some rivalry. And I read some history, Clive. You're much more of a historian on the breed than myself, but in 1808, at a dispersal of uh, Mr. Gwillem's Purslow uh, horde, saw a cow make 225 pounds. That's a pretty pretty fair sum there by a nice farm back then, uh, Clive. And then, yeah. and then that was topped then by uh, Collins, I'm not sure, Richard or Charles Collins, selling a bull called the Comet and a famous short on bull. And he was for a thousand. That had bought you half the Paris by, by then, Clive, wouldn't Yeah, it? yeah. Well, it's incredible the, the amount of value that people were putting on some of the, this early breeding, isn't it? And, uh, well, maybe when we see fairly big prices occasionally today, you know, we all sort of think we could nice to have a bit of that. But really, this has been a typical thing that's gone on sure. since livestock breeding became you know the art that it is sure and and uh, talking of the rivalry then uh, john price of the ryle uh, had laid down a wager with bakewell that uh, 20 of his hereford cows could out milk 20 longhorns which i thought was fantastic and price won as well i'd like to see a, i'd like to see the angus and the limousines having a milk off these days clive those guys had a lot of milk yeah. in their cows back then <laughs> yeah I, 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 we didn't get the the, the initial results did we but uh, but certainly a good that that was a great man too john price he was a, obviously a worcestershire man from uh, royal courts uh, near upton on seven and he was in some ways the equivalent to the Hereford as Bakewell was to the breeds that he was involved with because uh, he was a very very intelligent, outgoing sort of fella who got involved with the Tompkins family, took on their genetics 
um, and built up a very good herd uh, down in South Worcestershire there. Um, he, he was a brave man. He got buying property. Some of that went wrong for him, so the cattle were able to bail him out. And he had many sales. I think his most successful was the one he held in 1816, some biggish prices like you're describing, Andy. But um, he, he went on and carried on until... Um, the 1840s when he had his final sale uh-huh. in 1841 on his retirement mm-hmm. a lot of his cattle went on into to put the backbone in a lot of other herds didn't they with that initial Tompkins um, um, bloodlines as you say and Clive in the early part of the 19th century there was a mention of a, a silver cow um, what's the significance of, of the of the silver cow do we know well there's two there, there's two famous silver cows so one is the one that was left in Richard Tompkins' will to his son Benjamin, um, that presumably, you know, was the cow that developed the breed. Uh, but the other silver cow belonged to the Ewer family, um, and they also had a silver bull. It all gets very co- complicated, really, because um, there's all these names banding about, which breeders tended to share, but they were different animals, and, so, and, and the record keeping wasn't great. In fact, as far as the Tompkins family, they they wouldn't publish their breeding records because it was like their trade secret. And in a way, the person that tried to develop a much more open affair was um, John Price from the Royal. And whilst he didn't live to see the first Hereford Erd book published in 1846, he was very much behind it because he could see this was the way of developing breeding programs, of promoting your breed of stock. Um, and so he's regarded as the father of the herd book, um, but but didn't have so much to do with its publication. What he did try to influence were, were a chap called um, uh, Thomas Eiton from up in Shropshire, who was a, 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 a sort of a, a colleague of Darwin um, and, and interested in all that aspect of nature. Uh, it was him that undertook to research the bloodlines of these animals and try and knock it into some sense. Um, and so in the first two volumes that were produced, which he edited, there were about 900 bulls recorded. No females other than the mothers of the bulls in, in their description. But he got about 900 bulls. Well, um, John Price, he was open that, that all, the, all the entries would reflect his breeding and that of the Tompkins family. But actually, by the time that all this information come together, Mr. Eiton could see he had to go a little bit wider than that. Actually, it was the Ewers' bloodlines that dominated it. And by the time that um, volumes three and four were produced, every animal would trace back to the breeding of the Ewer family. And I'm afraid the others, um, other than that they'd be involved in, in perhaps some of the background breeding, uh, but they, they'd sort of uh, lost their influence uh, very quickly. It's an interesting subject, the herd book, because again, it's recurring in my research in other breeds as well, that uh, people who originally took on developing the herd book as a commercial operation, so they would do, they would go around and gather all the information and then sort of sell the herd book back to the breeders. And then in this instance, as you mentioned, Thomas Eiton in 1846 with the first herd book, and then he sold the rights to the herd book to, to a, a Mr. Powell, who, and then Mr. Powell then sold it to Thomas Duckham. 
And he then sold it on to Arkwright, who we mentioned earlier. So the, these sort of enterprising chaps would actually, they, they'd start a book and then actually sell the whole uh, the whole um, programme as it is on, onto somebody else, which is quite an enterprising Yeah, absolutely, Andy. Yeah, yeah, it was very enterprising and a good job they took the work to start, really, because it must have been, well, one heck of a job. I mean, the fact that we can all get on the internet and get on databases and I'm regularly using... Well, certainly our own UK one. I'll get on the Canadian one and the American one and the Australian one, and they're all the same as far as the way they work, which is lucky for me because I'm not terribly computer literate. With, inf you know, information there at the touch of a button, but uh, for them it must have been some sort of operation, and uh, thankfully those people undertook Of course, they, they were copying what the codes also, Clive, they'd be reliant on the information that was given to them, and, and in a lot of cases, I remember um, Drew Adam telling me this about the original Angus Heard book and saying he's got cop the first copy printed and he's got one, and it's all handwritten in the margin where they've corrected things because they were reliant on the herd the the, the herd manager to write down the dates of the dates of the calves and the size of the calves basically, and, and these guys probably couldn't even read or write, so they'd be putting thumbprints and crosses in there, and I think a lot of it had to be interpreted rather than just just or, or even you know getting hold of the herdsman and, and asking him the questions and writing it down themselves. So it was no, no mean feat, as you say, to put that herd book no, together. No, it's difficult, Andy. And I think in, in, in the original volumes one and two of the Hereford book, there'd be a lot of duplications as well as errors, and uh, so it did take some sorting out. But uh, you've got to start somewhere, yeah. and um, thankfully yeah. the, the, these people, like George Coates and Thomas Eiton, uh, did it for, um, to, you know, the Shorthorns and the Herefords, and... Uh, as a result, it's so much easier. At least we can get on with life today and uh, do our best. Let's just step back a little bit into the, to the 18th century again. And the, the, the demand had already started to grow from overseas. In 1765, the first Herefords arrived in Westmeath in Ireland. And uh, by 1817, two pairs of Herefords had arrived in uh, Kentucky, Missouri, under the ownership of Henry Clay. And then they reached Australia in 1825, not into Canada till 1860. And Clive, I'm going to bring in Dr. Bob Hoke for, for a minute or two here. Uh, Bob, the Hereford would have had a right. huge impact in the, the on the cattle in the USA 200 years ago. How, how did these first shipments go? Well, you know, they were fairly light at the beginning. Actually, statesman uh, Henry Clay Sr., who ran for president and was uh, Secretary of State, one of our highest diplomatic positions, and he imported actually the first cattle in 1917, and, and, um, but he only imported a couple cows and a bull. And then it was really spatterings from, you know, every five years or so. And it was all in small numbers. And it really wasn't until later in the, that century that Herefords came in. But, and then when they did come in, they came in, in in big numbers. So they got off to a pretty slow start compared to other breeds like Shorthorn. Okay, I, I understand that. And maybe the time wasn't ready for them. And thanks, Bob, for that uh, interesting information. And bringing us back into the UK, here's the fact that I'm, I quite like. The the bull Cotmore 376 was born in uh, 1835, and by nine years old, he weighed 3,920 pounds. That's nearly a ton and three quarters of beef there, Clive. That's incredible, isn't it, Andy? And, and effectively, he was judged as the best bull, even beating... Mr. Bates's uh, famous Shorthorn team at the, what we call the first Royal Show, sure. which was 
uh, held at Oxford. But Mr. Bates, he was, uh, you know, from Yorkshire, a man of um, some means, and he'd have sent, possibly sent his stock down to Oxford via perhaps even by barge or even down the coast on, on, and, and probably uh, carted them to the showground. Cotmore walked from Pembridge to Oxford Bloody to compete hell. in that first show. Bloody hell, that's, uh, that's 80-odd miles. And back again, presumably. <laughs> a turn of three quarters. He caused, it caused a fair traffic jam these days, Clive, but I don't suppose that was a yeah. worry back then. And, and as you said, he won the first Royal Show in, in 1839. And again, only four breeds there, Herefords, Longhorns, Devons, possibly Shorthorns, uh, or possibly Longhorns, should I say. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I, he would win the interbreed and beat them all, if only by being the biggest. Yeah, no, well, well, he would, but I, I think it was something of his excellence of in all respects, as we might to judge him today. Mm. What also happened that year, which was a bit of a, you know, a, a stroke, um, was John Hewer organised a sale at, at around about that time too, and as a result, uh, with Cotmore's publicity uh, sort of fresh off the press, uh, that assisted in helping to promote the breed and that's what we still do it for today yeah. you know and uh, so uh, that's nothing new and continuing with uh, with the exports by the 1860s the Americans and the Australians were clambering for the best blood and taking all the great bulls bulls such as Horace uh, 3877 and a cow called Dolly Varden and her her car for big money, and in 18, 1882, Thomas Clark took 125 head of Herefords in one load to New York, and I'm going to go back to Bob and just uh, ask him if he's got any more information on, on that shipment there. Well, it was called the Sensational Shipment of 1882, because they actually, Thomas Clark was, was beating wealthy businessmen from Indiana, uh, Charles Stort and Adams Earl. Well, Charles Stort was his son-in-law, and and Adams Earl had gone over and imported cattle from Herefordshire, and um, and Thomas Clark was beating them in the show ring with a home raised cattle, and they did not like that very much. So they gave him a, basically an open checkbook to go to Herefordshire and buy the best. And, and as far as I can tell, he did buy the best and and had royal winners. There was actually two shipments. Uh, but, I mean, he had royal winners, and, and the, the story goes that there was a lineup of, like, 50 breeders to see these cattle paraded past going towards the ship to, to come to America, that, that it was a big deal on both sides. But I, maybe more on your side of the pond, because they, he kind of creamed off a lot of the best best cattle, and they were, they were just really impressed with what he bought, but he spent a lot of money, too. But, but there was also one other shipment that, that, that dovetailed into that, and that was Gudgel and Simpson. They brought in two importations of about 100 cows and, and you know, up to 30 bulls each time at, at about the same time, 81 and 82. And it was on those two shipments uh, what was the basis, really the basis of Herefords as the strong breed that they were in the United States, and, and it, particularly on that second importation, was a bull called Anxiety the Fourth, and he was the one that made the big splash over here in the United States because mm. he was just so much better than anybody had ever seen. So on these two shipments came the use in the Western United States, where shorthorns have been king, 
and they've mainly been using Bates dual-purpose shorthorns, and they started using these Herefords in fairly large numbers. And, and then we had a terrible blizzard in the winter of 86, 87, and, and there was a bunch of neophyte uh, people that were, were raising cattle. They thought it was, it was a gold rush because there was free grass after we uh, got rid of the American bison, American buffalo, and we had subjugated the Indians, you know, sadly. And, and everybody rushed from Scotland and everywhere to get make their fortunes on this free grass and, and feral longhorns. And, and they started in 1865, they bred them with shorthorns. And then they started using Herefords, had this terrible winter. And um, at the end of that winter, the Herefords tended to be alive and the shorthorns tended to be dead. <laughs> and and that, that's pretty much what did the, uh, what made Herefords what they were is they, their survival, their ability to wrestle under tough conditions. These neophytes had not made any any uh, preparations for winter feeding, and and gosh, they went on to uh, just grow and grow and grow until they were registered 600,000 head by 1960 between Horn and Pole. I mean, they they just became, were so dominant; it was unbelievable. That's interesting to hear that the Hereford lived where the Shorthorn didn't because we've heard stories the other way around there. But, Bob, I really appreciate your input on that one. Thank you very much. And, uh, and I'll go back to Clive now. Thank you. Well, thank you. Moving on, I find it interesting to note that the first shipment of chilled beef from USA back to the UK was recorded by historians in 1875, with more coming from Paraguay in 1877 and a whole boatload of frozen beef from Australia in 1870. Now, what, what were we doing, buying beef back from these guys? Were, were we, yeah, were we well, it's ourselves? very interesting. Yeah, very interesting, Andy. But obviously, I suspect it's a bit of a message there that those people were a bit more organised, um, taking advantage of a market that was probably available to them, um, whereas old UK producers were just hanging back a bit and um, not half organised enough and uh, it's quite an amazing thing and it's something that's gone on ever since isn't it and uh, at the moment with uh, climate change atop of most political agendas self-sufficiency is going to come back into vogue and uh, well I think those are lessons that we need to learn and still uh, gain from. And let's move on with the Herefords a little bit. Once we turn the corner in the millennium into the, the 1900s, it would be a, a few herds that again dominated that, and one of these being uh, Little Tarringdon from William Griffiths. Uh, Clive, that would be a name again that would uh, would dominate, wouldn't it? And Tarringdon would be up there for the next 50 years and more. Yeah, well... It also it, it it's the Griffiths family and the over four generations. Um, Samuel Griffiths started farming at Briley Court and developed some pretty good Herefords for you know the late eighteen hundreds. Um, and then his nephew William Griffiths, I think he followed at Briley Court, but then moved to a farm called Alders End, which is close to the village of Tarrington, and developed some very influential cattle. Um, I don't think he was a great marketeer himself, really. And also, they never really won top awards at the events that were going on. So they sort of just did their cattle a little bit uh, sort of commercially. But in the type that they were and the genetics that they included, they were quite outstanding. He managed to pick up a bull called Starlight that um, was bred... Uh, um, by Lloyd Jones, very close to where another my great heroes, Sir Edward Elgar, was born at Broadheath, Worcester, and uh, this bull 
proved exceptionally potent in the older Zendard and uh, from it developed one of the greatest run of outstanding bulls that I think the breed has ever seen because um, on a previous conversation Andy we spoke about a bull called Good Enough well he was derived from this line of breeding and he won the Royal in in, um, 1919 and Right up to the end of the 1920s, there were cattle coming forward from this line of breeding. Mm. Uh, Many of them won at the Royal Shows. Um, And and so this was William Griffiths' work. Uh But his son, Harry, he took the farm on the opposite side of the road that runs through Tarrington at the place called Little Tarrington. And... He was really the architect of what we might regard as the modern Hereford. And what he did was to take a lot of the genetics from his father, but work specifically on the hind hen end of the beast. So putting much more confirmation in, but in order to do that, he needed to improve the hind leg. Because if we look at pictures of some of the top Herefords of the late 1800s, early uh, 1900s they they look quite immense cattle not as framey as Cotmore by any means but pretty immense but their leg structure doesn't look quite like I'd like to see them but what Harry Griffith stuck on them definitely would have been and because he was um, a, uh, quite a genius really he as a youngster, he, he hoped to be an artist, but his father didn't think that was a... He thought he ought to get a better, you know, proper job. Um, and uh, But he clearly had got these these images in his mind of balance and construction yeah. and perfection. And and also, apparently, he had like a photographic memory. So he, he could remember 10, 20 years back what those animals looked like so that he could build those genetics in, in, into his bloodlines. And, and um, did it phenomenally, didn't he? Didn't he? And bulls such as Ringer and Royal would feature quite prominently, wouldn't they, from, from there? And I believe Royal was sold to Major Robinson for 200 yeah. Pounds, who, yeah, who, Royal uh, Royal Oyster that was, and and yeah, he, he did a tremendous job in the Linnales that you just mentioned there, and um, um, so so Harry Griffiths definitely goes down as one of you know the great bovine breeders anywhere in the world, and then that work was carried on by his son on a different farm again at Temple Court Bosbury. Um, and um, you know, and that's where the sure. the, the direct uh, Griffiths line. But they're they're still um, uh, great great grandchildren uh, farming today, and uh, they'll be carrying on the good work and the name of uh, Harry Griffiths. Yeah, I believe the Bull Royal was sold to Major Robinson for two hundred pounds, who later sold him to Kentucky for three thousand five hundred pounds. Clive, I wish we could all run and turn them over like that. They were breeding outstanding breeding animals, which they didn't overvalue, uh, sold on in specific deals. And then, of course, particularly when there was an export drive on, a lot of those overseas breeders would bid up and um, those animals would make, you know, like 10 times as much, 100 times as much, you know, an amazing trade. 
um, um, amongst those proven animals that certainly. were so bred. Certainly, and again, money like that would, would go towards buying some, some more farms and certainly some more stocks. And you mentioned the bull uh, good enough, and uh, I think uh, he was probably born in, in wartime in the First World War and sold to uh, Percy Bradstock. And I read a nice little story that I think Ernest Griffiths had written saying that uh, he called the bull good enough, which was named after a Russian general. But then when Percy Bradstock went to register it in the book, he changed it to good enough because uh, he thought it was good enough. Do you think so? so yeah, and he proved to be so the case. And I think everybody was quite happy at the at, at the end of the, the story, yes. Mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned Ernest Griffiths speaks of Older Zen. Was his herd, did he have an Older Zen prefix then and his brother kept the little Tarendon? Is that how it worked? Yeah, well, William Griffiths didn't use the prefix until right towards the end of his time. And then, because prefix, well, that's another, you, you mentioned about uh, confusion uh, in names and in the records and the herd books. Uh, like, uh, originally, there weren't, herds and flock prefixes and so therefore like uh, tracing some of these animals is even harder but uh, eventually the the prefix thing did kick in and uh, that made it a lot better for both breeders and historians to follow the story so William Griffiths did develop the older then prefix eventually um, and Arius son always used Tarrington okay. as a prefix and and then uh, Jeffrey the, the next generation uh, used Temple uh, as prefix okay. the older Zen prefix became very well known because it had some very good owners afterwards the, the farm and hence the herds that were developed there and Lord Brockett had an a herd called Alders End, as indeed um, did the Brewarriner estate that uh, was owned by uh, Australian Sir Alison Becker, um, and, and they took it up to the end of the pedigree era for days at Alders End, a very famous uh, home of the breed. We'll move on towards that when we get into the next episode. Just stepping back to, to Ernest Griffiths there, he mentions a bull called Wilton. I saw an article he'd written in one of the magazines in the 1920s and saying Wilton would be one of the best bulls that he'd ever seen or bred, and uh, was he significant, uh, Clive? A lad called Ernest Griffiths, who, you know, I knew William Griffiths, his son was Harry Griffiths, but I didn't know that Harry Griffiths had got a brother called Ernest. And while his story is interesting, uh, as an aside from Erevan cattle breeding, I mean, his father did encourage him to do something else, which was become an accountant and sent him off to London. But unfortunately, the poor young lad got polio uh, within a year or two of being there. And it was felt best that he'd come home uh, and sort of recuperate. And as a result, he started working on the farm and um, worked along with his father, William, up until William retired. And then he he went on and farmed commercially um, using some Herefords. But I've also seen him breed and exhibit uh, clun forest sheep. Um, so he got he got the breeding bug in him, but uh, poor Ern sort of suffered a bit. But he does remember some of those uh, great cattle that uh, his father bred in later years, and certainly um, older than Wilton was uh, one of his favourites. And and in John Vaughan's book, Vaughan, as a lot of us know, sadly no longer with us, but uh, John Vaughan's uh, history book, which uh, I, I haven't seen a copy of yet, but I'm looking forward to seeing it. But in that, he mentions uh, a bull called Tarringdon Optimist, and and. John says there's a bull that came out of the blue, but then he proceeds to list the bull's entire pedigree and quoting that most of the top breeders in the land had lent a hand to his being, and uh, including Wilton being his grandsire there. And Clive Optimist really went on to become one of the most influential sires for for a long time, didn't he? 
well, the most influential in in the in the UK as a bull and pictures we've seen of him wouldn't really turn your head really and he won first prize as a junior bull at the royal show but i mean but what he did as a siren probably there's a lesson there for us all the best breeders aren't always the most outstanding lookers you know and uh, that's where the skill of a breeder comes in and it's probably use a little bit of Harry Griffith's photographic memory as to what the ancestors look like. Optimus come from a specific breeding program that Harry Griffith's developed but what the result was by the time we got to the mid-1970s every UK derived animal on, a me- on the tail male line would go back to him. So that's basically saying all the horn genetic, because all these cattle, of course, we're talking about are, are full horn genetic yeah. animals. Yeah. Um, they, they within the UK by the mid 19, well, before the mid 1970s, but you know, by the, by the late 1960s, uh, probably, they would all go back to that one bull on the tail line. And, they came from a part of the breed known as the Sir David line, who himself is quite an incredible story. Uh, he was bred just out of the town of Brecon uh, by by Mr. David Williams, um, and he was extremely inbred. I mean, he was a he was a sire on a daughter mating, and that sire was uh, extremely bred in that it was assumed that he was derived from a son on a daughter mating by a mistake of a cow getting in with a bunch of bull calves type of attitude and but that bull was not only an outstanding specimen of a red bull with a white head but but a sort sort of made up the main of the hereford breed you know coming on through all the time that we've been talking about there is another very successful line in the breed but we'll look at that a bit more closely some other time Andy because it just complicates things from what we're talking about currently but but I mean these are the significant things that are sort of ongoing within this great story of the Hereford and Clive continuing with uh, Optimist and I thank you for your addition to that story but I'd be right in thinking the next top sire probably another another of the most influential sires in in the in the Hereford breed came from the great Captain De Quincey and I know we profiled him a, a while ago but he was out of an optimist female I think yes it's Vern Robert and, and uh, optimist I think sired Punch who sired Robert and then out and, and like you say that, that classic um, um, half three quarter um, breeding mix yeah there there's another actually line of breeding that derives from Optimist that is always my favourite, which is coming down through a bull called Tarrington Idol, and then on through into Do a Lot to Broadside to Majestic to Shucknell Favourite. But we're to, we're talking about the breeding of the 1950s now, Andy. But it, it just shows, like you know, so okay. In the 1950s, the main bloodlines within the breed was Vern Robert. Shocknell favourite. There you are. There's there's two different lines, but all coming from that Tarrington Optimist. Excellent. It wasn't the most outstanding bull to look at, but certainly 
did the job. Yeah, Ivan, and I've seen some of the pedigrees that you've got written down in pencil that go back to the, the whole way, and I think it was you or somebody said that uh, you need a 400 acres of paper to write to, to write the pedigrees <laughs> back, going back to the to the well, original Tompkins. And, uh, there, was, there was a great historian of the breed known as Benny Dent. He farmed here in South Herefordshire, moved over to near Tenbury Wells, which is our stamping ground, yeah, Andy, yeah. and then emigrated to Australia. He, he is a great historian of the breed and 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 it's he that's done such a lot of research into all this back breeding but even in the say mid 60s he, he'd done this thing to say that um, he'd have like 100 million names in a pedigree that was all that you could find all that in the herd book so that just shows the importance of that doesn't it and he reckoned you'd need 400 acres of paper to write out this particular pedigree <laughs> and and that now is 50 years ago yeah. so goodness knows if we, if we wanted to set about such a task true clive i think we quite in quite detail we've covered pretty much the, f- the first couple of hundred years of the breed from 1723 to the to the 1920s and i think we'll leave it there and we can return with a second episode then when the hereford breed really went stratospheric through the 40s to the 70s and of course the dominance of the Verne uh, and then the, the uprising of the pole strain as well Klaus there's a lot more to carry on in, in this next episode All the best Andy really good to talk to you Thank you for listening to this week's podcast which was kindly sponsored by Harbro suppliers of quality commercial and pedigree feeds and expert nutritional advice visit their website or find them on Facebook for more information and while on the subject of Facebook, why don't you visit the Top Lines and Tales Facebook page where you'll find photographs and more information to back up this episode.